And if you give up the court today, if you say, oh, we just can't win this fight, that's a surrender that could haunt progressives, could haunt the United States for decades to come. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, which provides affordable, private online counseling. You can sign up at betterhelp.com best and get unlimited access to a licensed, trained, fully accredited therapist on your phone and computer through voice, text, and video chat. And now welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the history of what led us to being on the brink of the most conservative Supreme Court in 90 years, some of the details as to what's at stake, and some ideas about fighting back. Clips today come from The Ezra Klein Show, Amicus, Democracy Now!, Start Making Sense, The Tom Hartman Program, and Off Kilter. What is the story you tell for why the right-wing members have become so much more right-wing? Is that simply the Republican Party getting better at selecting people, developing more of a, a farm team? Is that a, an ideological story? What 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 is the explanation? I, I think that there's two parts of the origin story. I think one is Bork happened, and I think that that was seen as an original sin, that failing to this get— This is Judge Bork who was um, rejected from his nomination. Right. Yeah. Judge Bork, who doesn't make it to the court, who's seen, whose seat eventually becomes Anthony Kennedy's seat. Look, Borking became a verb after that. And I think that there was always a feeling that that seat was stolen. And when you think about how much rage was directed at Kennedy in the last few decades, uh, you know, he defects on gay marriage, he defects on abortion, he defects on affirmative action. That's because that was meant to be Robert Bork's seat. And when I think liberals say things like, you know, that seat was stolen, uh, the Merrick Garland seat was stolen, the response is, hey, you stole Bork's seat. So part of the reason I think Kennedy was such a disappointment in some sense is because they felt as though Bork was treated unfairly. But I think maybe more pointedly, Ezra, there is a rallying cry on the movement conservative thinking about this that is no more David Souters. Uh, they really do. I think they might have little rubber bracelets that say no more David Souters. And the idea that you could put someone up, that a Republican president has the opportunity to put someone up who is a rock-ribbed, Bork-like Republican, and they put up someone who not only drifts left, but in their view, drifts to the rabid left, that could never be allowed to happen again. And you don't have the analog on the left. Nobody says no more Stephen Breyers, right? Stephen Breyer is without a doubt a center-left Democratic uh, appointee, but nobody on the left says, oh, my God, you know, Breyer has failed us time and time again. Uh, so there just isn't that intensity around the proposition that we will not allow anyone on the court who even intimates that they're in play or that they're going to modulate over time. And I think that's actually the answer for why Harriet Myers got taken out. That wasn't she wasn't taken out by the left saying we don't know anything about her. That was very much in the mindset of no more David Souters. We cannot have anyone on the court that isn't an utterly predictable down the line conservative. And there's no such focus and um, sort of single minded view of what a liberal judge is that exists on the left. 
I, I think about this attitude sometimes, and, and I, I'd be lying if I didn't say in, in a way I was sympathetic to it. There seems to me to be a mythology around the court and, and around legal analysis generally that is somehow divorced from politics, divorced from power, that it's these gigantic brains who exist up in the clouds just thinking through their way through first principles and, and legal reasoning and constitutional interpretation. And I know the court deals with many technical cases and cases that are really just cases of law. But it seems to me that for a long time when it deals with political cases, that the reasoning ends up being quite political, that certainly at that level, people are very good arguers and debaters and thinkers, and, and they end up justifying oftentimes the things they want to justify. And so the politicization of, of nominations or when you nominate somebody to have this much power for the rest of their life, which is another thing I want to get to later, the fact that political parties and, and particularly on the right are now incredibly intent on making sure that the person they put there will wield that power in a way they like. In a way, it seems to me to do violence to our idea of the court, but it, it seems to me the inevitable result of having something like a Supreme Court that has to deal with highly politicized issues and that has a, a politicized nomination process. I, I'm curious if you have reflections on this, if this is just if, if this is really something that's gone awry or if this is how the system always had to end up. It, you know, it's interesting. I think uh, Ian Milheiser's book about the court was a good reminder for me that the court has always been a small C conservative institution and that we romanticize the Warren court at our peril and that time, time, time again, uh, faced with the opportunity to be progressive and to defend progressive values and to do if you think that the core function of the court is to be a kind of counter-majoritarian check on the other branches and to speak for the powerless. Unerringly, almost throughout history, the court has failed to do that. Uh, and, and so we make the mistake of thinking that the court institutionally is on the side of the little guy or on the side of democracy. So, so that's part of it. I think that by design, and I, and I partly that's my answer when people say, but Mueller will save us. Uh, up until a week ago, people were saying, but Kennedy will save us. What is baked in to the American magical thinking around the rule of law and the courts is that the courts really do uh, sort of fly in on silver unicorns and promote, you know, justice and democracy. And I think if we learned anything from Anthony Kennedy, it's that the courts are not always <laughs> equipped to do that kind of thing. So, so, so part of it is I just think the framers gave us the gift, but also I think the curse of thinking that the rule of law uh, was this self-reinforcing proposition that was going to uh, withstand any battery and come out and just fix things. So, so, so that's part of my answer. But I think to be more responsive, I, I think that the Republicans very wisely about, you know, and this goes back to the Mies revolution on the courts, um, made the decision that if they couldn't win elections and they couldn't effectuate policy ends through the elected branches, they would do it through the courts. And so I think that what you got was not only, you know, the birth of a conservative legal movement that absolutely 
clobbers whatever the legal liberal movement is. But it's just so organized and it has been for decades. And it that plays out, you know, in the most nuclear level, you know, the existence of the Federalist Society, the pipeline that is Federalist Society, law school, grooming people, clerkships, making sure that all of those folks know the right people, they clerk on the right courts, um, they get on these short lists. I mean, this is all really by design such an efficient machinery that doesn't have a parallel on the left. It just doesn't. And part of the explanation for why it took Barack Obama when he first got elected such a long time, even to start to put people on the courts, even to start to fight for judges, which, by the way, he didn't always fight for his judges, is just because the machinery doesn't exist. And so I think if you have that asymmetry in enthusiasm around the court, and it maps perfectly onto the asymmetry in messaging around the court, which is really what Donald Trump ran and won on more than anything was when he would say to those stadiums full of people, I don't care if you freaking hate me, you're going to vote for me anyway, because of the court, no parallel on the left. And all the exit polls the night after the 2016 election showed that for the 20% or so of the electorate who prioritized the courts, two to one, they break for Donald Trump. It's so deep. It's not just that it's, you know, sort of baked into the courts and the system, but this is a decades-long project to prioritize the court, to prioritize messaging around the court. The, The John Roberts, you know, liberals are all activists. We are neutral we call balls and strikes, all that is of a piece with this massive project that has just been absolutely successful at convincing Americans that we need conservatives on the court because they do law. Liberals are a bunch of pot-smoking hippies who make stuff up and do interpretive dance. And that is just such a message that has absolutely permeated the doctrine and the discourse that it none of it surprised me. The asymmetry you're describing has been by design uh, the unitary project. Now we're just seeing it come to, I think, fruition. I have had this conversation in the past, but to the extent that the Republican Party just has a decades long jump on yep. getting voters to care and that I think the exit polls I saw after the 2016 election were that Democrats who prioritized the court just didn't care enough to show up. And by about a two to one margin, Republicans who cared about the court voted for Donald Trump, even though they didn't like Donald Trump. So so there's a big, I guess we call it the enthusiasm gap or focus gap. You're you're making the point, and I agree with you, that we can't teach folks that between now and September. What is the best argument we can make for people who just think the court happens out in the world and has no connection to the future of healthcare, reproductive rights, the future of the environment, all the stuff that you have been trying to tell them to connect as long as I've heard you talk about it. What's what's the message? How do we catch up? The immediate way to connect uh, a judicial appointee 
uh, into somebody's personal life is to talk about what choice means. I mean, an entire generation of women has grown up with Roe versus Wade basically guaranteeing uh, certain rights that they have. And while the Republicans have nibbled at it, the fundamental uh, force of Roe versus Wade is intact. And if that is to fall, that will be a stunning change in circumstances for a very great number of women. And now that we have uh, the Attorney General of the United States claiming that the protection for people of pre-existing medical conditions is legally indefensible, it's suddenly plausible to imagine a court that might say the same thing and throw that out. And now you've got everybody in the country who has a family member with a pre-existing condition remembering the days when, you know, they were job locked in because they could never get new coverage or they had to spend down to Medicare because they could couldn't get coverage at all, or they, because they couldn't get coverage, simply had to forego life-saving treatments. Those are the two, I think, biggest ways in which, uh, if this court starts messing around politically in those areas, real people will see a real and dramatic change, a kind of baseline shift, earthquake style, in their, what they now consider to be kind of expected, settled ways of of life. The problem, I think, is we have to be able to persist. And if you never start making the argument that this is a court that has essentially been captured by special interests and is running the tables with these five to four decisions, then there's going to be another nomination after that for which we're not prepared, and there's going to be another nomination after that for which we're not prepared. Preparation may seem a little bit late right now that we have a nomination, but if we don't start, then we'll always be unprepared until there's suddenly a vacancy and now we're in a mad scramble again. So we've got to do a better job of of helping the public see what is going on. I've got sort of frowny eyebrows because I think you've just said the thing that worries me the most, which is it almost doesn't matter what happens at confirmation hearings, that we have wrote questions, wrote answers, that the answers are not only vanishingly <laughs> useless in terms of giving us any real insight into the nominee, but as you've seen, I, I've watched you on the Judiciary Committee this year, the answer to everything is, I can't answer that. There's a Ginsburg rule, ostensibly, that holds that you can't answer, even though Ginsburg actually spoke at great length about uh, Roe v. Wade. But what do, what do you do? I mean, I've seen you up there looking like you wanted to throw something. But if the response is simply, I can't talk it's about it. It's very frustrating. You have five or seven minutes. You have a candidate who has been murder boarded by professionals to be able to withstand five to seven minutes to run out the clock with long answers and to spoon feed essential judicial pablum to us and at no costs answer any hard questions. And then when they're through, the Republicans all automatically vote for them and onto the court they go. And the next thing you know, they're making these decisions that protect the big corporate special interests and that damage American democracy in favor of the big influencers and away from regular people. 
It's frustrating. <laughs> Let's go back to the part where you said it's it's not time to give up. If we assume that those hearings are a, a teachable moment for the American public to understand, even if, you know, you can't muster the votes and maybe the votes will be there. And I know it turns on who the nominee is. What is the teachable moment here? What do we do? What are your questions going to be that will try to puncture this just seemingly brick wall of uh, I can't answer it's it may come before me even brown is no longer uh, discussable uh, the trend that you've seen towards simply running out the clock what do you do with your time what can we watch senate democrats to do that will help if, if nothing else set the table for this conversation in a more rigorous way going forward I think the uh, teachable moment here comes from this array of five to four decisions in which all the Republicans line up and do something new and different. And if you look at them, there are probably 20 of them, all in all. It is far beyond any statistical explanation other than bias. You just can't justify it by the supposed balls and strikes theory of Justice Roberts. It's a pattern. It's a distinct pattern. And the average American is not familiar with, you know, six or seven Supreme Court opinions on, you know, campaign finance, gerrymandering and Voting Rights Act. They're not familiar with the array of decisions on, you know, class actions and forced arbitration and discrimination and uh, union power. So you got to line it up for them so that they see the picture. You can't expect somebody who's got a busy life of their own and a family of their own to figure out that pattern unless somebody lays it out for them. And what we have not done a good job of is laying out the pattern of these, again, probably 25 to 4 decisions, all of which point in exactly the same direction. And that direction is always to the benefit of the biggest corporate influencers who are at play in our uh, politics, whether it's to support them in electing Republicans at the polls and making sure that the Democrat side always loses, whether it's gerrymandering or voter suppression or dark money, or whether it's making sure that no corporation has to spend an unfortunate moment in a courtroom facing somebody who they've injured. When you see the pattern, it becomes unforgettable, I think. Uh, maybe it's just because it's the way I practice law and it was, you know, stunning to me that courts would uh, have that kind of a, of a pattern emerge. But I think showing the American public that pattern is the way to get them engaged. Because, by God, I don't care whether you're Tea Party or Bernie Sanders progressive, you believe as an American that when you get your day in court, that day in court is not going to have some big special influences thumb on the scales against you. And you're not going to have to walk into a courtroom with judges who are predisposed to rule against you just because of who you are. That is something that I think virtually every American agrees on.
Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, which provides affordable, private online counseling. When you sign up at betterhelp.com best, you get unlimited access to a licensed, trained, fully accredited therapist on your phone and computer through text, voice, or video chat. And of course, they're LGBT-friendly. It's great for individuals or couples counseling for anything you're going through in life right now, and of course, in this political climate, who couldn't use a little extra help? When you get started, you fill out a questionnaire so they can match you with a counselor who's perfect for you, and you can start counseling today. But if you decide you don't vibe with the therapist you're matched with, you can switch whenever you want. It's less expensive than in-person counseling, but you're still getting the same great help from licensed professionals. A lot of people are not comfortable talking to a therapist in person, or they simply don't have the time, but with better help, you connect from anywhere you are, at home, work, or on the go, and if you have trouble affording it, BetterHelp even has financial aid available. You can sign up right now and save on quality professional therapy by going to betterhelp.com best. You can take a step towards supporting your own mental health and support this show at the same time by using our link to let them know we sent you. That's betterhelp.com best, and that link is in our show notes. President Trump's nomination for Brett Kavanaugh uh, to the Supreme Court to replace the retiring Anthony Kennedy. In fact, Brett Kavanaugh and uh, Neil Gorsuch were both clerks to Anthony Kennedy. Our guests are David Cole, who is legal director of the American Civil Liberties Union, which has become the rapid response organization in this country uh, to all things Trump. Uh, Cecile Richards, former head of Planned Parenthood Federation of America. President Tr uh, Trump has promise to overturn Roe v. Wade. Rachel Tiven is head of Lambda Legal, and Fatima, uh, Fatima Goss-Graves is head of the National Women's Law Center in Washington, where she spoke. A thousand people gathered uh, last night after President Trump made his nomination. Cecile Richards. Well, I think that one of the one of the issues here um, that women have, of course, is equal representation on the courts, uh, in Congress, and there is no way to avoid um, the the fact that of the 113 Supreme Court justices in our lifetime, only six have not been white men. So yet again, we are now populating a court, and of course, this president, I think more than 75 percent of his judicial nominees have been men, uh, and as as was discussed last. Last night, when Roe versus Wade is at stake, it could be a court where the uh, that it is absolutely overturns the right to safe and legal abortion, and that is done by men. Uh, I think that the point that David made earlier is right. All of this is political. Um, this is the most political nomination process I've ever seen. Uh, and women are enraged. I think we're seeing women, his, you know, historic numbers of women running for office, women turning out to vote, women volunteering, women marching. This nomination is going to, I think, simply inflame women more, and it's going to have a huge impact in the November elections. And, uh, David Cole, I wanted to ask you, in terms of the the legacy of Justice Kennedy and the vast difference between this this nominee and what Kennedy represented, if you could talk about uh, his role in terms of being not only conservative, but at the same time also uh, seeing the Constitution, as you mentioned, as an evolving document. Right. So Justice Kennedy was also a conservative, uh, appointed by a, a, a Republican president. Uh, and voted often with the conservatives, particularly on business cases. Um, but 
uh, he had an open mind, uh, and he was—he believed in an evolving constitution. And as a result, he was actually—he was willing to to listen, and willing to depart from the sort of script and to side with the liberals in some cases, to with the conservatives in others. And as a result, he kept the court within the mainstream of American society, notwithstanding that it's had a majority of conservative justices for the last forty years. Uh, He's—he wrote all of the court's uh, gay rights decisions, uh, a number of them five. Four, including the marriage equality. He was the fifth vote to preserve Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. He was the fifth vote to strike down the death penalty for uh, juvenile. He was the fifth vote to hold that um, disparate impact is a violation of the Fair Housing Act, a critical uh, interpretation of a, of a civil rights statute. He was the fifth vote to save affirmative action. So, you know, the, the, if it weren't for Justice Kennedy, we would be living in a very, very different constitutional world. And, you know, the question will be, uh, if Kavanaugh is confirmed, and we have uh, five more conservative justices on the court, um, will we be living in a, in a very different world? And I think the answer, we don't know the answer, but I think we know this. The answer depends more on us than it does on Justice Kavanaugh. If, if, if we go to, go to the polls <clears throat> at the midterms, if we go to the polls in 2020, if we turn this moment around into a, uh, a galvanizing moment for those who believe in civil rights and civil liberties, and the politics of the country reflects that, and I think we can, the court has never, with one exception in our history, departed very substantially from where the mainstream of American public opinion is. And that one exception was in the progressive era and the early New Deal, where People and Congress and the president wanted worker protection laws, and the Supreme Court was striking them down left and right. What happened? The court became illegitimate, and it had to shift. So I think the answer has to be politics, and so politics includes fighting about this nomination, but I would say the real politics includes getting out there at the tw- in, the, in the midterms, getting out there at 2020, and voting like your rights depend on it. And if that's the case, I think we will continue to have a court that is within the mainstream of American society, notwithstanding Justice Kavanaugh. I wanted to go for a minute to what might have been one of the most compelling reasons for Trump to actually choose Brett Kavanaugh, and Judge Kavanaugh also arguing that sitting president should be shielded from criminal or civil investigations in a 2009 article for the Minnesota Law Review. Kavanaugh wrote, I believe the president should be excused from some of the burdens of ordinary citizenship while serving in office. He went on, the indictment and trial of a sitting president, moreover, would cripple the federal government. So, David Cole, this is a man, Brett Kavanaugh, who actually worked with Ken Starr, who went after President Trump. Uh, apparently, what, he changed his views. But at this point, he is the one on the record who says, don't go after President well, Trump. He, I mean, and this could be very significant if the Mueller case goes to the Supreme Court. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think the thing about uh, Kavanaugh on the president is, is twofold. One, he, yes, he's taken the position that there shouldn't be criminal trials and there shouldn't be civil trials. The Clinton administration took the position there shouldn't be civil trials, or at least they should be held off while the president is sitting. So it's it's not a radical position. Um, but he also took a very bold view of what a president can be impeached for, including lying and obstructing justice. So, you know, on, on the impeachment, he, he is the person who wrote the part of the Ken Starr report that justified the grounds for impeachment against President Clinton. And there was some thought that, that President Trump wouldn't appoint him because— 
Kavanaugh's opinions on that question actually uh, are against Trump's interests. Explain that further. Well, because what is what is the most likely uh, impeachment charge against uh, President Trump if there's the will to impeach him? It'll be obstruction of justice. And and uh, Kavanaugh's report sets out the legal theory by which that is an appropriate right. You've got people like Alan Dershowitz saying the president cannot obstruct justice. Crazy position. But you've got Kavanaugh saying, no, the president can obstruct justice and can be impeached for obstructing justice. Just um, to, you know, respectfully. Um, Cecile Richards. <laughs> yes. I, I think, look, here's, what, here's what's important. Um, we may not know exactly what where Judge Kavanaugh stands, but I can tell you every single anti-choice organization in the country has been celebrating since last night. It's spread all over their web pages. They finally feel like they have got the fifth vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. And the, the, the fact is, 70 percent of people in this country believe that we should keep Roe versus Wade. It is overwhelmingly important to understand the vast majority of people in this country. And so while, you know, we may not know exactly where he stands, I think I do have a pretty good idea. And it is going to be incumbent in this process to establish that he, in fact, recognizes and supports the right of women in this in this country to make their own decisions about their pregnancy. We cannot wait another 40 years for this court to change, because in the process, women are going to lose their rights. LGBTQ folks are going to lose their rights. Women are going to lose their lives. And this is a really, really important nominating process. And I want to I want to emphasize how much people's lives are at stake in the short term. I mean, I share David's faith in the checks and balances of our system and the ultimate perfectibility, especially if everybody goes out to vote if they are allowed to. Uh, but I, I think what's important to understand is if the Affordable Care Act is utterly gutted and overturned by this court, that has a drastic effect on the lives of LGBTQ people and particularly people living with HIV. At the time that the ACA was first first passed, 17 percent of people living with HIV had access to private health insurance, and that left a huge gap in care. The ACA has been transformative for the lives of people living with HIV and AIDS. This is a death sentence if it is overturned by an activist court that doesn't really care whether people live or die. So is, is your hope or expectation is that there will be a groundswell of popular activity in the next few months? I think we saw that the popular, the, support, the popular support for saving the Affordable Care Act was massive, right? And so if everybody who called their senators about the ACA calls their senators about this nomination, it is absolutely possible to say that Brett Kavanaugh's views are not adequate to represent the American people. Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins and South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham have both said they'll oppose any nominee who's openly hostile to Roe v. Wade. This is Senator Collins speaking on CNN. I would not support a nominee who demonstrated hostility to Roe v. Wade, because that would mean to me that their judicial philosophy did not include a respect for established decisions, established law. And I believe that that is a very important fundamental tenet of our judicial system. In fact, uh, Senator Susan Collins, though she's voiced concerns, never opposed a Supreme Court nominee put forward by a Republican. Is that right, Fatima Goss-Graves? And what does it mean to say, if they openly um, oppose a women's right to choose. It's sort of a, uh, a way of telling uh, Brett Kavanaugh, be very careful how you talk about your opposition. 
This is why we need a higher standard. It is, it is the truth that uh, uh, Susan Collins has never opposed a Supreme Court justice nominee from a Republican president. But we've also, you know, are in not typical times where President Trump has promised that his nominee will overturn Roe versus Wade. So that is the question before her. And just having the nominee say, I respect precedent, is not going to be enough. It, you know, you need the sort of deeper probing into whether or not they really believe that Roe v. Wade was correctly decided, which which we already know that Judge Kavanaugh has criticized in the past. And we also know, need to know whether or not he believes in the personal liberty line of cases, because the same anti-abortion forces are also the ones that are anti-contraception, that are attacking the range of types of personal relationships that people have. And, and these are not hypothetical matters. We know that over 20 states are poised to uh, ban abortion as soon as Roe is overturned. And having someone like Judge Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court will only incentivize the many states that have already been trying to restrict abortion access again and again, making it harder for people to access the care that they need. And now for our new segment, the Midterms Minute, a look at the candidates and races that you need to know about, shout about, and support to make sure we have a blue tsunami on November 6th. But before we get into the primary races today, we want to mention the Southern Poverty Law Center's campaign to block the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh. SPLC has identified six key senators whose votes could make the difference. They are asking you to call each of them weekly until the confirmation hearings begin. These senators include Republican Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Republican Susan Collins of Maine, and four politically vulnerable Democrats in deep red states, Joe Donnelly of Indiana, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota, and Doug Jones of Alabama. Even if they're not your senators, we need to flood their phone lines to make sure they understand what's at stake. Encourage others to do the same by sharing this on social media with the hashtag, What's at Stake? Now onto the primaries, which are basically a practice run for civic action ahead of November. In the last episode, we featured Hawaii's primaries on August 11th, and of the August 14th primaries, we spotlighted Minnesota. If you missed it, you can go back and check it out or visit bestofleft.com slash activism. As always, we're going to speed through a lot of information, so keep an ear out for your district or state and review the information we provide in the show notes. Now, in addition to Minnesota, Wisconsin, Connecticut, and Vermont all have primaries on August 14th. And today, we're diving into Wisconsin. Change is already in the air in Wisconsin. Democrats soundly won two important state seats in red districts earlier this year. In Wisconsin's first district, Justice Democrat and ironworker Randy Bryce is up against teacher Kathy Myers to run for Paul Ryan's seat in November. These two candidates have very similar platforms, but Bryce, also known as the Iron Stash, was the candidate endorsed by Bernie Sanders and the United Auto Workers, among others. It recently came to light that Bryce was arrested multiple times for various offenses 20 years ago. We've included an article on this and Bryce's response in the notes. So if this is your district, educate yourself before the primary election. 
In Wisconsin's 7th District, two candidates are vying for the chance to take on four-term Republican Representative Sean Duffy. Veteran and lawyer Margaret Ingebrigtsen is running on a platform including single-payer, while her opponent wants a public option. Ingebrigtsen has been endorsed by the National Advocacy Group Demand Universal Healthcare. This November, Wisconsin has a real chance to unseat anti-union, dark-money puppet Scott Walker from his governorship once and for all. As a reminder, whoever holds the office will be involved in the state's redistricting process following the 2020 census. Former State Superintendent Tony Evers is leading the Democratic primary polls. His campaign is focusing on unity and liberal policies like the end of solitary confinement and adopting automatic voter registration. But candidate Mike McCabe, who is polling at only 5.5% right now, is refusing individual donations over $200, wants to test run a basic income program, and make the state health care an option for everyone. Bernie Sanders has said nice things about him but hasn't officially endorsed his campaign yet. If you're a Wisconsin resident, to vote in the primaries, your registration must be postmarked by July 25th, or you can register in person by August 10th. Now, we want to emphasize registration cutoff dates and absentee ballot request and submission dates are different for each state, sometimes even each county. Don't forget to review your state's election information and voter ID law restrictions at rockthevote.org as soon as possible to ensure you will be able to vote in both the primary and general elections. Now, we know we threw a lot of names and dates at you today, but we hope you will take a moment to check the segment notes, which include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And today's Midterm Minute, just like every activism segment we produce, is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if building the bluest of blue waves is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about supporting progressive candidates across the country via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Today's episode is sponsored by Bolt, the security-as-a-service company that is your one-stop shop for online security. Now, to be secure with your data, you need a few things. So here's a quick overview. You need a secure, encrypted connection between your devices and the rest of the internet. You need a secure and encrypted place to store files and back up your full hard drive online. And you need a way to create and store long, complicated, and unique passwords for every online account you own. With Bolt, they provide all of these services as a package deal, which allows them to offer it to their customers for 75% off. And as a special offer to my listeners, you can get an additional 10% off when you use the coupon code BEST at checkout. So with Bolt, you get their fully encrypted virtual private network, or VPN, which acts as a middleman between you and the rest of the net, keeping your data private. Add to that their unlimited online storage and backup solutions, and their password manager, and in one fell swoop, you'll have all of the tools you need to keep yourself as secure as possible online. I've made it easy for you to find this deal. Just go to bestofleft.com slash bolt. That's bolt like deadbolt. And don't forget to enter the coupon code BEST for an additional 10% off your bill, and not just for the first month, but for forever. Again, that's bestofleft.com slash bolt, and use the coupon code BEST at checkout. You think it's possible, it's possible to block Donald Trump's Supreme Court pick, even though the Republicans control the Senate, even if John McCain is absent by a vote of 50 to 49. The arithmetic there seems pretty clear to me. How do you add this up? 
Well, I'm using the new math. <laughs> Look, here's, here's the reality of the Senate and also the reality of our times. And it's something that, that we have to put into the mix. We cannot talk ourselves out of fights that must be fought and that can be won. The 51 Republicans in the U.S. Senate are not all the same. You have in the mix in the Senate uh, at least two members, Susan Collins from Maine and Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, who have in the past broken with the Trump administration and with Mitch McConnell on major issues, issues as big as health care reform, which was really you know one of the, the centerpieces of Republican political activity over the last better part of a decade. And so they are opportunities, not guarantees. I'm not telling you for sure that they will do the right thing, but there are people who can do the right thing. And Collins has said she will not vote for someone who is demonstrably opposed to the right to choose. The obvious objection is Trump is working from a list of potential nominees, all of whom our opponents of Roe v. Wade, that's how you get on the Republican list. So what have I got wrong here? You got nothing wrong, John. And so right off the bat, Collins has given us a statement we can work with. Now, of course, she included wiggle room there yeah. with that, that horrible word, you know, demonstrably or demonstrated, right? You know, she, she said, oh, yeah, yeah, obviously I need some higher level of evidence than reality. Um, <laughs> and so. The job of activists in a circumstance like this is to provide that higher level of evidence, to focus arguments on her and to make her hold her to account. And so it is completely logical and, in fact, fully necessary to pour energy into, you know, building up that argument on the ground in Maine with her constituents, making it real and making it strong. The same goes for Lisa Murkowski in Alaska. Remember, Lisa Murkowski in Alaska has also broken with Trump on some key issues, not merely on the health care vote, but also on the nomination of Betsy DeVos, for instance. And so we have people who've shown an ability to break with the administration at key points. Again, in Alaska, Murkowski is somebody who has beaten the far right, beaten the social conservatives. They defeated her in a primary. She came back and won her seat as a write-in candidate. So it's completely logical to pour energy into building up these arguments, doing it on the ground there. And the first tier duty is to create state-based arguments that reach them. And so, yes, you focus on choice, on gay rights on uh, affirmative action, some of the most vulnerable areas. You put those front and center because that's essential. Those are good organizing issues. But then you also build the issues out. If you're, if you're talking to Collins in Maine, you focus on some issues that the court may address that are of concern to Maine. That's what organizing and activism is about. And I'll tell you, if, if the progressive movements, if... if uh, pro-choice groups, pro-environment groups, pro-worker groups, pro-civil rights groups, pro-civil liberties groups, don't go to the mat on this one, which is literally definition of the Supreme Court of the United States. Where would you do it? At the end of the day, the heart and soul struggle is going to take place in, in Portland, Maine, and in Anchorage, Alaska, and in smaller cities and smaller towns of those states. And, and 
you have to build arguments that work in those places. Of course, you include choice. And I think uh, also really dial up the volume on LGBTQ rights, because it's clear America has moved to a place of sympathy and support for uh, the rights of lesbians and gays. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so as a result, you know, don't, don't hesitate on emphasizing those issues. But also, don't, don't you know, stop there. Keep going. Keep digging deeper into the records of who, uh, record of whoever Trump will nominate in a few days on antitrust issues, on public land issues, on ag issues, on worker issues. The Trump people, they think that they've got a mobilizing issue for their base, for people who may be frustrated with Trump, may be disappointed with Trump, but they'll at least come out because they'll be excited about a Supreme Court fight. Well, that plays both ways. And the fact of the matter is, organizing that goes into winning this Supreme Court fight, organizing in August, September, October, whenever the vote actually comes, because McConnell's suggesting it can come before the election. But organizing that goes into this can so easily transfer into organizing for the election Excellent. in states across this country. Excellent. And I just want to underline here, the, so the fight is not just to win Collins' vote against Trump's nominee by fighting in Portland, not just to win Murkowski's vote by fighting in Anchorage. We also have to worry about North Dakota, Heidi Heitkamp, Democrat, West Virginia, Democrat, Joe Manchin, Claire McCaskill in Missouri. All three of those Democrats voted to confirm Neil Gorsuch, despite the fact that he was nominated in complete violation of all Senate history and protocol. So, we have a problem not only in Portland and Anchorage, but in, in North Dakota, in Missouri, uh, and in West Virginia. And possibly Montana, uh, although I think John Tester is actually going to be pretty good on this issue, I hope. And also possibly Indiana, where Joe Donnelly is in a tough race yeah. for re-election. And there's going to be tremendous pressure, not merely from uh, Trump and McConnell and all the conservatives, but also from you know some of the compromise at the first possibility Democrats, right? You know, folks who say, oh, you know, save the seat. It's the most important thing. But with all due respect, if you surrender the Supreme Court in order to save a Democratic seat, what, what is the point, John? Yeah. What are you saving yourself for? What fight, what fight down the line are you saving yourself for? You know, the fact of the matter is, this is the fight. This is why you want to have progressive folks, you want to have people of goodwill in the United States Senate. And frankly, in this case, fighting with Trump, why you would generally want to have Democrats. The fact is, if you can hold those 49 Democrats, and it's really vital to hold them, if one of them goes bad, if one of them goes over to McConnell and Trump, then it, the likelihood of getting Collins and Murkowski is substantially reduced. But if you can hold those 49 then you have, uh, you know, two opportunities here. You know, this is just, this is a fight that can be done. And people who, you know, just imagine uh, that you, you can't possibly convince Collins to do the right thing, or imagine that you can't possibly convince Murkowski to do the right thing, or frankly, if we recall the health care vote, Imagine that John McCain wouldn't necessarily do the right thing if he, yeah. you know, has a, a rebound and comes back. You know, you just don't give up on, you don't, in a fight like this, you don't give up on people 
what you do is you look at every opening because you are talking not about you know five versus four or six versus three on the Supreme Court or four four balances with a swing whatever. What you're talking about is the right to choose, the rights of loving couples to marry, the rights of uh, people who have been historically discriminated against to have you know some protection in the workplace and some hope of advancement. We're talking about gerrymandering. We're talking about the structures of our elections. We're talking about voting rights itself. I mean, all of these issues are in play, as well as a huge host of economic issues. We are in a transformational moment as regards our economy, digital revolution, automation revolution. The courts will be involved in a host of decisions that shape our future. And if you give up the court today, if you say, oh, we just can't win this fight, let's hope that maybe in November we get a better result. That's a surrender that could haunt progressives, could haunt the United States for decades to come. Brilliant tweet by John Lewis, the uh, congressman. Uh, Do not get lost in a sea of despair. Be hopeful. Be optimistic. Our struggle is not the struggle of a day, a week, a month, or a year. It is the struggle of a lifetime. Never, ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble, necessary trouble. Hashtag good trouble. I think he's differentiating that from bad trouble, but it's just, it's it's a remarkable thing. The uh, news is reporting, well, all the networks now, that uh, Justice Kennedy has said that he's going to step, step down from the United States Supreme Court, which gives Donald Trump his second appointment in two years. This is distressing, distressing news. And uh, in large part because the American people don't seem to understand the importance of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, if you read uh, the Federalist Papers, Alexander Hamilton talked at some length in the Federalists, the the ones that are in the 70s or the low 80s, I think it's uh, 74, uh, but whatever. Um, In in that range, you'll you'll find them. He did a series of five Federalist uh, papers. They were published as newspaper articles at the time, but what we call the Federalist Papers. He did a series of five of them on the Supreme Court and the court system. Uh, because he and uh, Hamilton and and um, and uh, James Madison wrote most of these. John Jay wrote a couple, and and uh, there was somebody else who wrote one or two. But um, basically, it was Hamilton and Madison, and they were trying to sell the Constitution. This was between 1787, when the Constitution was written, and 1789, when it was ratified. It took two years to get that thing passed and basically create a whole brand new form of government here in the United States, do away with the Articles of Confederation, and bring in the Constitution. And when they uh, wrote the Constitution and when they were selling the Constitution, uh, there was some concern expressed by a number of people, by the people who referred to themselves as anti-federalists, and Thomas Jefferson was the leader of this pack, by the way. There was some concern that the Supreme Court could end up being essentially like monarchs, like kings, uh, that they would have too much power. 
and they wanted to explicitly limit the power of the Supreme Court. And, and their concern, I mean, it wasn't that they were opposed to power in and of itself. They gave enormous power to, to Congress, the power to make war, the power to raise taxes, the power to spend money. They gave enormous power to the president, the power to be the commander in chief of the military. Um, but they didn't, and they wanted the courts to have the power to be basically, you know, the court of last appeal and all that sort of thing. But they didn't want the courts to have too much power because they were not elected. The Supreme Court was appointed by the uh, justices or appointed by the president, ratified by the Senate. They're not elected. And so there was this concern. And if, if you read Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention, which is a day-by-day you know, summary of what happened and what the debates were, and a lot of verbatim quotes in there, you will see that there was a huge debate over this over whether the Supreme Court should be answerable to the people in any way at all. And you had the Hamilton faction, essentially. Hamilton wanted the president to be a, a lifetime appointment. He, Hamilton actually thought that you know, having kings was a good thing. The, the idea of hereditary kings, not necessarily a good thing, but having somebody who was so powerful that they could counter, counterbalance the mob you know, the danger of, of democracy, because there was a big discussion at that time about the danger of democracy. This hadn't been tried before in a real meaningful way, the way that they were doing it. That, the, you know, the, that there needed to be this, this king-like figure. And, and when Hamilton said that on the first day of the Constitutional Convention, he was laughed out of the convention. He got so PO'd about this that he went back to New York and stayed there for two months uh, and finally came back later. But, uh, you know, he was so offended. But then he argued later that the Supreme Court should have this power, and he, got, he, he lost. And so in the Constitution, it says that Congress can override the Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court says unions can't have rights, Congress can override them. If the Supreme Court says that you know, the president can, can uh, have his Muslim ban, Congress can override them. Now, I'm not expecting this Republican Congress to do that, but there, there's probably a Democratic Congress coming. Let's hope. And I think that Kennedy delayed his, his withdrawal from Congress, or from, from SCOTUS. He, did, he failed to delay it. Had he delayed it, his announcement until after November, then there's a possibility that Democrats in the Senate could have made sure that whoever Trump appoints is at least a reasonable person, not another Neil Gorsuch, who's... A, who's the most right-wing and extreme member of the Supreme Court that we have seen since the, since the slaughter courts, since, since the 1920s. But instead, I'm sorry, the slaughterhouse cases back in the 1920s. But, but instead, what we are seeing in all probability now is that the Republicans will just jam this through really quickly. So back to the, the, the Constitution. This is something that Congress has not taken advantage of, to the best of my knowledge, in history. Now, they, they, uh, there's some exceptions to that. There have been a few times when Congress has passed laws that have court stripping provisions in them. I was talking with Congressman Pocan about this earlier, where they literally write into the law, the, the new piece of legislation, this law may, is not subject to review by the United States Supreme Court. They block the Supreme Court. And you say, well, how can they do that? The Supreme Court is the final say. No, here's what the Constitution says. It's, this is Article 2 which is the, or excuse me, Article 3, which is the judicial branch, Section 2. 
in which they establish the court system, the judicial power to extend to all cases and law and equity under rising under this Constitution, blah, 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 blah. And then they get to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has original jurisdiction in just a very narrow area. Original jurisdiction means they're the first court you go to. In all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers, and cults and consuls, and those in which a state shall be a party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction. So in other words, if New York State sues Connecticut, it goes right to the Supreme Court just like that. That's where they sue Connecticut. Or if an ambassador is involved in some some case that ends up, you know, in the U.S. court system, uh, it goes right to the Supreme Court. But everything else, well, back to reading from the Constitution. In all other cases, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction. In other words, they're the final appeals court. Some other court has to have judged first, and then it gets appealed to the Supreme Court. It's, the, it's where the buck stops. It's the final appeal, okay? In all other cases, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction, both as to law and fact, with such exceptions and sort of like the way Donald Trump does his tweets, he's actually borrowing the convention of the 1700s, of the, of the constitutional era. They capitalize the word exceptions to say, this is really important. With such exceptions and under such regulations, and the word regulation is capitalized, as the Congress shall make. So Congress has an absolute power It doesn't require a constitutional amendment, although that's the way to make it permanent. But the Congress has the absolute power to say, you pass Citizens United? We're going to pass a law striking down Citizens United, and we're going to embed in that law a sentence which says, this this law shall not be subject to judicial review by the United States Supreme Court. They can do that. It doesn't require anything other than simply doing it. And they can pass it with a simple majority, assuming it doesn't get filibustered in the Senate. And if it gets filibustered in the Senate, they need 10 10 extra votes. So there is a remedy. And I think, frankly, we should start talking about that remedy. There are two very important humans in the Senate for whom a lot of this is is really going to come down to them, right? right? And those people are Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. Right. So we have a 51-49 Senate, which means that if two Republicans flip and vote with all the Democrats, Trump's nominee is not confirmed. Collins and Murkowski at least claim to be pro-choice. And, you know, what they need to realize is that this confirmation vote is about a lot of things. But one of the things it is about is whether or not Roe v. Wade is overruled. That's if, right. if, if you If you vote to confirm Trump's nominee, you are voting to overrule Roe v. Wade. That is your choice. You have done it. And so Susan Collins in particular is the United States senator from Maine, which is a blue state. And she can either run for reelection in a blue state – 
as the senator who saved Roe v. Wade, or she could run for re-election as the senator who single-handedly killed Roe v. Wade because they will need her vote. Um, so yeah, so Collins and Murkowski are 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 the the people you have to watch if you are in Maine or you are in Alaska. You should never stop calling them because they are the people who you know potentially hold the keys to like you know I'm not optimistic that we can hold the seat open for the rest of the Trump presidency. But we could actually have a normal process where rather than Trump picking some guy like, you know, a nihilist like Neil Gorsuch, there's actually like an ordinary negotiation and he picks someone that's broadly acceptable and widely respected and like, you know, maybe someone in the vein of Anthony Kennedy. Um, and, you know, whether or not we get someone who like most people can live with. Or whether we get someone who wakes up every morning and says, how am I going to own the libs today? You know, comes down to whether there's enough pressure put on Collins and Murkowski that they start to feel it. So those are the two people to watch and to try to influence in the weeks, the months, potentially the years ahead. But there's also a lot to learn from what Republicans did when it came to the Supreme Court not that long ago. They kept Merrick Garland from uh, taking his rightful seat on the court. And what a different place we would be in right now if we were watching him as a member of the court as opposed to Neil Gorsuch. So here's what I would I hope John Roberts is thinking. Two words that I have heard a lot in the last few days, which aren't used very often in judicial circles. I'm on tenterhooks. Are court packing. That's not what I thought you were going to say. What did you think I was going to say? <laughs> I was thinking, I mean, also, oh, shit, but. Yeah, it was closer to what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, so like. Court packing is like the jurisprudential equivalent of nuking another country to take out their missile silos because they are presently fueling their missiles. And if you don't launch first, you will die. I mean, it, it, it is an act. You know, court packing is when you add new members of the to the Supreme Court in order to change its majority. It's something that Roosevelt briefly tried and then it wound up being mooted because the court flipped on some important issues. Um, it is what you do when the when your court becomes such a threat to your nation continuing to be a democracy that you have no other choice. And Roberts has the power to make sure that doesn't happen because when he is, you know, the swing voter, he can make sure that the court like continues to preside over a nation where elections matter where states cannot be, you know, incredibly aggressive in, in, in suppressing votes, where when there's a president he doesn't like in power, that president can still sign a health care bill and that health care bill won't be thrown out on some ridiculous theory. And if we continue to be a democracy, then like the Supreme Court will be – will continue to play a very substantial role in American life. Um, but I fear that like people are angry. I think that people are justifiably angry because of what happened to Merrick Garland. And if the court overreaches, the demands that are going to come for the Democratic base are going to be things that will fundamentally restructure how our government functions in ways that won't be easy to reverse. 
So no big deal, but democracy sits in the hands of Justice Roberts, as well as Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. We've just heard clips today, starting with The Ezra Klein Show, talking with Dahlia Lithwick about the focused and organized multi-decade campaign of the conservative movement to take over the Supreme Court. Amicus then flipped the roles and had Dahlia Lithwick asking the questions of Senator Sheldon Whitehouse about explaining the importance of the Supreme Court to Democrats, a point many of them seem to have missed up to this point. Democracy Now! then went through several of the points laying out what is at stake with the right-wing takeover of the court. Start Making Sense from the Nation spoke with John Nichols about the campaign to block Trump's nominee. Tom Hartman then discussed a congressional solution to putting a check on the Supreme Court's power. And finally, we just heard Ian Milheiser on Off-Kilter addressing the calls from the left to pack the court by adding seats during a Democratic administration and what John Robert can do about it. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hello, Jay. This is V from Central New York. Uh, I have been enjoying the various episodes you have put together recently. And um, while I'd probably like to comment on every single one of them, I want to reserve my time now for the comments um, associated with a conversation I was having with a friend. He is a lifelong Democrat and counts himself to be a progressive. We live in a very conservative region of New York State, which is, I don't know if a lot of people understand, but if you don't live in the cities and don't live in many of the suburbs that are attached to the cities, you are pretty much in Alabama, Mississippi, and the like. It's very conservative. And he and I were talking about the prospects of the Democrats, especially going forward into 2020, 2022, and 2024. I said to him that the major problem facing Democrats, not only in New York State, but across the country, is that they need to define themselves as more than just not Republican and to be truthful, not just progressive, because progressivism does not have a true sense of what it is. I can go to my bookstores, and I have, and I could purchase dozens of books on conservative ideology. These are succinct books where I can read about principles, not ideas, principles, philosophies that conservatives can trace for 200 and 300 and sometimes even 400 years. I can do that. Progressives do not have that. And he and I uh, conversed about this for a couple of weeks and he came to the conclusion that yes, uh, this is true. You could find a lot of progressive books on ideas, but not necessarily on philosophy. 
And I'd like to challenge your listeners, I think I've maybe mentioned something like this before, to maybe suggest to me some books that can lay out the philosophical pin, the underpinnings of progressivism. Where does it come from? How has it evolved? Does it go back 100 years? Does it go back 300 years? And then if that is not the case, then in the next two years, especially younger progressives, I'm talking the under 30 crowd, I would like for the intellectuals among you to take it upon yourself. And I guess I shouldn't exclude individuals over 30 because they would have probably the resources and sometimes even the time to do it. But to build that historical, philosophical foundation, because as I've noted before, I feel we're, we are going into a radical time period where progressives really are under threat of being swept away by their uh, lack of foundation. And many progressives right now are flirting with socialism. They don't understand a lot of the philosophical underpinnings, but it seems more real than progressivism. So in order to give progressivism a true future, I think we need to invest time and energy in building that philosophical basis, and we need to do it now. And particularly now to 2020, even 2022. That will be how progressivism will win the day. Keep up the great work. Goodbye. Hey, my name is Ralph. That's R-E-L-P-H. Uh, I live in Waterbury, Connecticut. And I just, I, I don't know. I just I, I saw the show and I'm conservative. And I'm, I'm 17 years old. I just, I don't know, I just wanted to talk to you guys just about the liberals and just about that type of thing. I wanted to know more about it. I've never really understood it. Like, I've heard, I've heard people like talk about them from my side. I've never really spoken to a lefty before in my life. So I was just wondering what it's like to be on the left while you're on the left. Maybe I've learned something. So I don't know. Uh, hopefully I get on, you know. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. The last message we just heard was from Ralph. Very glad to hear from him. He was asking, basically, hey, uh, you on the left, what's your deal? And I I gotta say... What a perfectly timed call, because we also heard from V from New York sort of asking the same question from a very different perspective, but uh, yeah, sort of asking, hey, uh, the left, what's your deal? What's your philosophy and underpinning for this so-called progressivism? And he, he mentioned, I, I just want to highlight this, uh, V from New York, he mentioned progressivism and socialism, socialism, of course, being one of those hot button words that usually turn people's brains off because they think they know what it means. But of course, it means a hundred different things to a hundred different people. But but he, he mentioned both of those as being separate things, a philosophy of progressivism versus a philosophy of socialism. 
And I don't see it that way at all. I see socialism mostly as a tool rather than a philosophy, but I suppose it could be both. But at the very least, they are not mutually exclusive philosophies. So socialism could be a tool that has a certain set of philosophical underpinnings that help you decide how you want it to run. For instance, just to clarify, I listen to a lot of people say a lot of things, and I can't think of a single person I have heard in years and years, maybe ever, who want the type of socialism Americans gen generally think of when they think of socialism, when they think of China or Russia or some sort of previous state-run, top-down socialism, that's what they think of. That is not what effectively anyone is advocating for. So I always like to make that clear when I can. Young people today, when they think of socialism, for the most part, they think of Scandinavia. They think, boy, Denmark sure seems like they've got their act together. What could we learn from them? So with that little detail out of the way, uh, I do have a theory to answer V about why it is hard to pin down a philosophy of progressivism, whereas, as he points out, it's really easy to pin down a conservative philosophy. And here's why. Progressives start by looking for problems. And then, once we found a problem, we look high and low for solutions to those problems. Wherever we might find a solution, that's where we look. And then, once we think we've found solutions to the problems, we latch on to the ones that seem the most hopeful, that they, they seem the most likely to solve the problem that we're facing, and we latch on to those and we advocate for those as policies. Now, on the flip side, the reason why it's easy to find a philosophy of conservatism is because they start the other way around. They start by choosing a philosophy to believe in, which they believe will be the solution to all problems, whatever problems happen to come up. And then they find some problems, and then they try to solve those problems by applying the philosophy they had already agreed on before. So they don't, they don't go looking for solutions. They believe they've already found the solutions because they already decided what their philosophy was a hundred years ago. So whether or not their philosophy is actually a good fit for the problem or not isn't really an issue for them because they just believe so fervently, no, but my philosophy is right, so it must be the right answer. It's the answer to every question, no matter what that question is. So the conservative philosophy is much more prevalent. It's much more in your face. You know, it gets talked about in concrete terms, like small government and low taxes. Now, as a progressive, do you want to know how big I think the government should be or, or what I think the tax rate should be set at? I think the government should be the right size. And I think that taxes should be set at the right level. I don't go around pretending to already know what size the government should be or what level we should tax people at the way conservatives do. I want to find problems. And then if the best solution is to use the government then I will happily increase the size of government enough to solve that problem. If a problem could be solved by increasing taxes and spending more, then I'm happy to do that too. But it doesn't mean that I have a philosophy of large government and high taxes. It's just that I want to use whatever solution works best to solve the problem, and I am not constrained by a pre-existing philosophy that tells me that things should be one way or the other, like that government needs to be small, Therefore, I have to be philosophically opposed to growing it, or that I think that 
government needs to be big, and therefore I'd be philosophically opposed to shrinking it. It's all about finding the right solution. So as much as I like hearing from V, we hear from him often, I think he may be calling for something in this instance that we don't necessarily need because it's already there. You know, the, the philosophy on the left of looking for the best solutions and then supporting whatever ideas we come up with to address the problems we have is already deeply embedded in us. We already know that. It's just not quite as easy to describe because it's not always a simply describable set of policy principles that are one-size-fit-all policies to solve every problem. We're constantly coming up with new policies to solve new problems because new problems keep popping up, whereas the conservatives don't have that problem. They only have about five policies, and they think that those five policies are the answer to any question or any problem that might come up. So, you know, if anything, we need to coalesce around a set of solutions that we've already found because we have seen them work wonders elsewhere and set that as a policy framework that is linked in people's minds with, okay, progressives, liberals, the left, this is what they're all about. And I think we're making progress on that. I think that we know that universal healthcare works better than our system. We know that robust universal social benefit programs like paid time off, free childcare, free college, and several other similar things. We know that those increase productivity and happiness in citizens. That's just on the economic side. We can go down racial equality, gender equality, and so on. But we have sets of policies that We've seen them work elsewhere. We know that they can be beneficial. We know we can be in favor of them. We just need to be louder about our demands to implement those policies so that when people think of the left, that's what they think of. And then my last thought to add is, is the underpinning of my personal perspective on identifying problems and finding solutions to them, which is two words, and that is that I want to reduce suffering. That's pretty much it. If they're suffering, that I think solutions should be looked for, and the best solution to reducing suffering should be implemented. And of course, that branches out into a million different directions, into basically every policy arena you can think of. But in every case I can think of, that's always what it comes down to. How do we reduce suffering? Now, that said, I don't want to speak for everyone. That's, that's my vision of what progressivism is all about. But if you have thoughts about what it's like to be on the left or to explain why you're on the left, it sounds like our uh, new conservative friend, Ralph, would like to hear from you. And so would I. So the number to dial in and chime in on that is 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash best of the left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes, on the blog, and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.